Hello, I'm Grayson Brulte. Welcome to another episode of SAE Tomorrow Today, a show about emerging technology and trends in mobility with leaders, innovators, and strategists who make it all happen. On today's episode, we're absolutely honored to be joined by Kristen Thompson, Product Manager, and Philip Hubertos, Director of Product Management, Driver Assistance, and Automated Driving Maps at Here Technologies. On today's episode, we'll discuss Intelligent Speed Assistance and the impact it will have on the driving experience. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having us. Hey, Grayson. Great to talk to you today. It's great to have you here because here over the years has been innovating. You have a constant track record of innovating and building world-renowned maps. You've also taken a very big leadership position on autonomous driving. Kristen, how is here approaching autonomous driving? Yeah, so we have been in this space for mapping um, as a leading uh, platform for location intelligence and technology for uh, about 30 years. So we started building navigation maps 30 years ago, and we started getting into the autonomous space around 10 years ago, uh, working in partnership with Mercedes on their first autonomous driving pilot that they did in, in Germany. And they were one of our, our first customers to launch a level three program about a year ago in Germany. They got their certification for a level three system on, on the highway, and they have leveraged our high definition maps for that system. So we've been building our high definition maps specifically for automated driving. And now we have a variety of different customers and platforms leveraging that technology. So we've been working in close partnership. I was very fortunate years ago to Mercedes-Benz R&D, and I saw the original prototype vehicles. I said, oh, this is well done. You kept the S550 interior. It's very beautiful. And he says, Grace says, no, we have a problem. I said, what's that? We open the trunk. He goes, our customers can't put their golf clubs in here. And, and so it's come, it's come a very long way from when they had the big stacks in the trunk to, to, to where they are today. And, and they keep innovating as, as years keep innovating for Mercedes innovated for hundreds of years. You've innovated for 30 years. And Philip, there's a really cool innovation that's come out of here is the intelligence speed assistance technology. What role is that playing in your approach to autonomous driving? I'll be honest and say that intelligence speed assistance really is a European Union uh, mandate. And it's a very basic assistance system. But what I see is it's a great way to drive consumer adoption for driving assistance and automated driving system. It, it's like it plants a seed for such systems to gain consumer trust and confidence in such systems. The, the goal of ISA is to reduce road deaths to almost zero. That's, that's what the European Union had as its, uh, its core mission for this. And to achieve this, it provides drivers with support to always know the speed limits on all roads. And we have co speed limits coded to all road segments uh, since many years. And the reason is that speeding is really one of the top reasons for accidents. Right? Um, so ISA is a mandatory feature in all European Union countries uh, for new type vehicles since the summer of this year. And it's going to be um, mandated for all newly registered vehicles starting in the summer of 2024. How is it building consumer confidence? Is the vehicle not allowed to speed? How is it building that consumer confidence? So what it does as a minimum implementation is it displays the speed limit at all times in the cluster. So in direct line of sight, and then it has to do either an audio or visual warning, or it can also limit, you know, the, the acceptance of your, of your foot pressure on the, on the accelerator paddle. So it doesn't go over the speed limit. Those two things are optional, uh, what 
One of them at least is mandatory, but you can choose which one you implement. How does it see confidence? Well, there's a technical system here that provides you with the correct speed limit at all times. So there's a piece of technology that works in your favor. Uh, and I think if you start going and taking it a notch up, if you combine that as a ISA, as a passive level zero feature with a more active level one feature like a cruise control, then you start uh, really seeing how consumers like that, you know, a piece of technology helps them to drive safer and, and more comfortable because that system would then automatically take over the speed limit uh, on the roads that you're driving and, and either allow you to accelerate more or, or slowly uh, bring you to the correct speed limit when you're in cruise control. So that's how I see it. Are maps the backbone where you map the, the EU with speed limits? And if so, are they are the backbone. How often is that being updated if, there, for instance, there's a road construction area or something on the road might have changed in certain parts of the United States due to, due to weather, for example? Yeah, so we have a variety of different data sources that we use to update the maps. We're constantly updating our map data. Um, we use camera technology. We use aerial and satellite imagery, uh, crowdsource data from our OEM partners that we use, and uh, a variety of other inputs, uh, probe, dynamic data feeds, etc. So we're constantly updating our map data. It's really a question of how often and frequently the the end users want to update their systems, get fresh map data into the vehicles and get that out to their drivers. With the end user you're referring to, the world's OEMs, let's say the, the European OEMs, how often they like to update their systems? Correct, yes. And so Philip mentioned that it's it's mandatory in the EU. Are you seeing the OEMs incorporated in ways that make it very easy for the driver? Because some drivers we've, we've had on, they don't like beeps. Perhaps they like a visual instead of a beep. Are you seeing your OEM customers innovate on the way that they display that data to those drivers? Yes, and I think they're trying to provide options. Uh, it depends on the OEM itself uh, and how they're actually implementing this technology, but there are a variety of different ways to actually implement this. So audio and visual are, are some ways, but then there's also uh, some haptic feedback and uh, you know vibrations, things like that. So there, there are different ways to actually get this information communicated to the driver. That's a real big positive because then the driver could essentially pick, okay, I like the sound, I like the haptic, I, I like the visual, for instance, I like looking out at the screen in front of me, my wife doesn't like it, but she likes the beep beep. So you, you get to pick and choose your preferences. Philip, the EU is, is racing towards autonomy. There are deployments throughout the EU. Could intelligent speed systems become the de facto speed limits for when autonomous vehicles are deployed, moving paying passengers of, of the public in the EU? Yeah, I mean, the, the speed limits are part of our HD life map, but it's not just the legal speed limit that you need. You also need to know what speed is actually a comfortable and safe one to drive, right? Because you may have a road that has a legal speed limit of 100 kilometers, uh, but you still don't want to drive the full 100 kilometers per hour in automated driving mode because it may make the passengers feel uncomfortable. So the speed limit is just one indicator. Uh, we have other indicators. We have curvature data. Uh, we have recommended speed data, um, things that help um, an automated driving system uh, to behave or, or help the vehicle to behave uh, in a comfortable and safe mode. 
I like that the recommended speed data, is that based on the data that you're gathering as the vehicles go down the road? Or how are you coming to that, the best, if you want to call it best practices? Yeah, so sometimes there's actually uh, signs that recommend speed limits. So that's, that's one data point. Uh, curvature data can be another. Um, so how sharp a curve is, what's ahead of the curve, what the speed limit is uh, behind the curve, for example, if there's a road junction of sorts or something else. Uh, but it really depends on how the OEMs want to implement this. So we provide the data and then they use that data to come up with uh, what they feel comfortable. You know, you can probably relate that uh, someone driving a Porsche may have a very different feel for speed uh, than someone driving a, a big SUV uh, on a curvy mountain road. Right. So, uh, yeah, comfortable speed uh, means different things to different people in different cars. So that, that is what the OEMs used to adapt and still have, you know, what BMW calls sheer driving pleasure or what maybe a Volvo calls, you know, the safest car on the road or something like that. So it, it, we, we give them the freedom to implement uh, how they want that, uh, how they want their brand, their vehicles to feel like. I like that here technology is in a platform. And when you go to, say, customer A, they can implement it one way. You go to customer B, they can implement implement it another way. It creates a really great platform that, in my opinion, becomes very sticky as technology moves from level two to three to level four. And Kristen, in your opinion, what's needed to achieve SAE level four? You're, here's clearly building a, a very good data lake, but what's really needed to achieve level four, in your opinion? Yeah, well, I mean, you absolutely hit it. It's data, right? So data over time um, and accruing more and more data at scale globally in all kinds of different scenarios. I think what we have seen um, as we work with a lot of OEMs is that they're really focusing on individual use cases. So how can they enable autonomy for a particular set of conditions and um, at scale because their vehicles are available broadly and at scale. Uh, when you look at some of the, the companies that are focusing on level four systems, uh, they're really trying to do all levels of autonomy on a focused scale. So it's really different approaches. Um, and I think because of the amount of data that is needed to identify different use cases, different edge cases, outliers, certain conditions, uh, that's, that's really why you see those two different approaches. But I think in order to get to level four, it's really about the data and the feedback loop to the systems, learning um, and, and getting that information to the car. The data that you're gathering from the level two systems today, is that helping your OEM partners and customers perfect their level four systems? Yeah, absolutely. So we have a, a marketplace platform. So, um, you know, we get data from our customers and use that to make improvements to the map and in turn provide that map data to our customers. Do you ever see a point where, let's just say, you have an individual driving a level two system where they become disenfranchised as they go to level four? It's the same thing. No, I, I, I want to drive. Or oh, perhaps the system didn't perform the, the way it was supposed to perform. Do you see any dis, uh, any potential negative feedback there? Do you think that we'll eventually just segue once the regulatory landscape is, is properly set? I mean, the, the customers that we work with give their consumers the choice, right, when to engage the drive automation systems and when to just drive themselves. Um, and certainly there is regulatory uh, and also um, 
limitations from the OEMs on where they allow a vehicle to drive itself. So currently we are still in the conditional automated driving space on public roads by serious production cars uh, that you can take and drive everywhere. I mean, you can buy uh, the latest Mercedes S-Class with the drive pilot and drive it wherever you want to drive it to, right? An L4 system is often a robot taxi that is confined in where you can actually take it. And you know, if it rains heavily or even snows, they may just stop the whole service altogether. But but with your S class, you can still go and drive, of course. And you can decide whether you know you want to take a, a phone call and and maybe don't concentrate on driving, and you're out on a on a freeway or interstate, and you just you know hand over control of the system and and just uh, do your call or talk to passengers or whatever you want to do, right? And not concentrate uh, on driving. Philip. You mentioned earlier that the intelligence speed assistance mandatory in the EU. How did that come about? Was it the regulators saying that we want to create safer roads? Was there feedback from the public? What what led to to that? Yeah, so uh, the European Union uh, has a general safety regulation, and this this general safety regulation's key goal is what's what they call mission zero, which is really zero road accidents with fatalities uh, in the European Union countries by 2050. That is, uh, and ISA intelligence speed assistance is one of the of the regulations that is part of this. GSR, the General Safety Regulation. It is a European Union initiative. Uh, it is mandatory. Uh, it has become mandatory this year for new vehicle types that are newly launched to market. And it becomes mandatory for all newly registered cars uh, and buses and trucks and delivery vehicles and trucks uh, in summer of 2024. So then if you buy a new car, it will have an ISA solution. Can the older older vehicles, can they be retrofitted to meet compliance or how does that work? It, it's funny you ask that because ISA isn't really a new thing. Um, I'm driving cars since a couple of years that have an ISA feature uh, and it wasn't mandatory. Uh, so, you know, it was an option. Uh, so you can order it. You don't have to bring it to all the vehicles. So if you own a vehicle that doesn't have ISA, you are still allowed to drive it. Perfectly fine. I live in Florida, you go on the highway, and every other billboard is lawyer. Accident call, we sue. Accident call, we sue. It's, it's a big problem to make my insurance rates go up. Are you seeing global insur insurers um, take advantage of that, where you have driver A, or if you want to use the term customer A, where they're sharing it within the insurance company and saying, hey, it's true, you don't speed, we have 12 months of data, 18 months of data. Proving that, okay, maybe you average two miles over. Hey, but you're not a guy going 80 miles an hour down the road. Are you seeing any insurance companies say, okay, this is a really good positive thing as we look to improve our underwriting algorithms? So I, I've worked with a couple of insurance companies years ago, actually, um, on, on geolocation technology topics. And it was interesting. Um, but at the time, they weren't, you know, they weren't using real log files data so it basically was a black box that you put into the vehicle with technology and software owned by the insurance company and it was connected to the car uh, and that way they were they were pulling their own logs and providing access to their own data uh, so this was never data that reached uh, us uh, at here uh, internally 
what we do what we do do is uh, we can help with with geocoding hotspots of accidents uh, things like that you know from from accident reports but again that's that's really a different a whole different uh, work stream other than uh, driver assistance and automatic driving uh, and the data that we're using for that it's interesting though what you said with accidents from from a risk standpoint if you could take data and say okay historically between four o'clock and five thirty p.m this one section of highway has more crashes than everything else that becomes really really interesting there that could help lower rates it can also help adjust the speed if you go say okay this area we, we need to figure out a way to reduce speed because just historically there's all these crashes isa will potentially lower crashes lower speeding in the eu kristen do we get to a point where it becomes standard in the u.s or other countries around the globe yeah, actually, I think, uh, you know, what we're seeing right now is the the EU is the first to implement it uh, in a similar way where they're doing, you know, with a lot of the uh, data privacy laws. And what we're seeing right now is, as I had mentioned before, these different use cases, right? Individual use cases that OEMs are working on for autonomy. Uh, they're really trying to push the limits of what we're allowed to do with autonomous driving in the marketplace right now. I think over time, as you start to see data coming out from things like ISA and other other um, assisted driving reporting coming out on how safe and how beneficial it is, I think actually we'll start to get more regulations that enforce it, right? So over, right now we're pushing on regulations, but I think over time there will be a pull of um, regulations actually enforcing that more autonomy is available in vehicles and these systems are available to users. So things start to get safer over time. Where, Marcus, Japan, um, the government has been very vocal about the adoption of autonomous vehicles because they have the age in place policy. They're, they're a very aging population, live in rural areas, and they have to get to medical care. And so they've been pushing that. And then Mitsu, the Japanese trading house last week announced that they're going to start doing autonomous truck to help shore up the Japanese supply chain. Do you see this, maybe Japan taking a leadership position just based on what the factors that I described on this? Yeah, I, I mean, I could see Japan getting into the space. Um, I think, interestingly enough, uh, you know, it's an area that we are are looking to expand as well. And I think there are other other markets in the in Asia that we are looking to expand where this could potentially be beneficial. I think probably the U.S. would be a likely next step for this to go as well. And, and we work with local partners in these Asian countries, right? So we have partnerships there. Uh, and there's one advantage. Uh, often these are islands. <laughs> so, you know, there's no way you can drive from Japan into another country. Uh, it's different here in Europe where the different countries all have very different rules, speed limits, markings on the roads, signs can look very different. So there's a lot of diversity here that you don't have. And that's an advantage of a country like Japan or take South Korea or even take uh, China. That's interesting. Let's say you're in France and you're going into Switzerland, for example. What happens when you go over that border? Is it a seamless? Obviously, you have to go through customs and you're clear. What is it like from a driving perspective? Yeah, so so let me let me adapt your uh, or change your example because uh, Switzerland is not a, a European Union country. There is actually a border and there is actually passport controls, but uh, in most of the other European countries there isn't. So when you're part of the European Union, which Switzerland isn't, then you just drive and there may be a sign that says you're not entering 
France or Austria or Italy, and that's it. I mean, there is no border control point. Uh, there is no big sign uh, often in, on the smaller roads. But the rules change. And that is why you need a map data for ISA and, and for many other things, because the rules change. And so the vehicle needs to know where it's at and what the rules are. And that's what we provide uh, down on a road segment uh, level. From a driver's perspective, do you notice any change when you go over the Italy-France border? Can you go faster on one side and allows you to go faster? Or do you notice any differences from a driving perspective? Oh, yeah, of course, yeah. I mean, I'm, I live in Germany, uh, on, on the Autobahn in Germany, there's many sections where there is no speed limit. So the limiting factor is how fast your car can go if, if you are into fast driving. Uh, but as soon as I drive into France, then the speed limit on the, on the auto routes on the motorways in France is 130. And if it rains, it's 110. <laughs> so these are things that you need to know uh, and that your map data set needs to know to inform you uh, or even to adapt uh, an, an, any sort of automated driving system. So whether it's uh, a more simple cruise control system, an adaptive cruise control system, or whether it is uh, something uh, on L2 plus L3. Um, and yes, the, the how drivers drive uh, is also changing. In the Netherlands, for example, my personal observation is that people drive much closer uh, to each other and change lanes uh, in a very different way than they would do in Germany, uh, which also has to do with the speed limits in the Netherlands. Those are behavior information that you should also uh, be aware of and use uh, as a data point in your automated driving tech. Okay, this is getting really interesting. Let's say I touch down in, in Paris and I, I, rent, I rent a car, I drive to the south of France and I, I want to go over to northern Italy. What is that like from a driving experience and say it starts raining? Does the car, and I'm, a, I'm on um, adaptive cruise control, does the car automatically adjust speed or how does how does that work for an individual that doesn't live in the EU that's going in the EU and is driving um, from one country to another? Yeah, so I think the first point is the information, right? That you're provided with the information about uh, the correct uh, speed limit. And if it is an automated system, then it should inform you that the conditions are changing and therefore it should lower the speed um, depending on whether it's an L2 system, you may need to press a button to say, yeah, I understand, I want to go slower. Or you may be able to override it if you're still in control uh, or set the speed higher manually that is allowed. So those are all possibilities. Um, for an L3 system, that should really adhere to the roads. Uh, right? So uh, when you drive from France into Italy, it has to know uh, what the road rules are and then apply them accordingly uh, in the software and in the driving behavior. Otherwise, it will not be allowed, actually. I don't think that uh, you will get a certificate um, if, you, <laughs> if your software stack doesn't uh, adhere to the rules. And as you know, the, the, the OE, on L3, the OEM is liable for how the vehicle drives. Uh, so, of course, they're the first ones who want to make sure that the vehicle doesn't break any rules. I like it because then it's going to be a lot easier to get an automatic car instead of a manual. <laughs> so there, there's benef there's benefits to the tourism economy there. It's been very clear throughout this conversation that maps play a vital, critical role in the future of driving, both ADAS driving and as we get to level four driving. Kristen, 
in your opinion, what is the future of BAPS as it relates to autonomous driving? Do they do they update in real time? What We all know they're going to play a role there, but what is the future that they're going to play with autonomous driving? Yeah, as, as far as whether or not they're updating in real time, we do have different data streams. So we do have dynamic data that does update in real time. Um, as far as the map data itself updating in real time, we're continuously getting updates. But really, again, it's on the the OEM and how quickly and rapidly they want to update the map data in their system. It's a lot of data. Uh, so some of them do not want to, d- to update it continuously. But really, as far as the role that maps are going to play, you know, we, we help with localization. So we, we assist the vehicles in, um, you know, knowing where, exactly where they are in the world. Uh, for example, there's, there are things like sensor foveation for the camera. So that way the, the sensors know where to focus on a speed limit sign or a traffic signal. And then we also extend the sensor horizon beyond what they can currently capture with their perception system. Um, you know, for an automated driving system, you're usually looking at around 500 meters for a comfortable takeover from the vehicle driving itself back to the driver. Uh, and that's beyond the limit of what most sensors can perceive right now. So we help perception uh, and localization in, in that kind of way. We we help with, with driving behavior. So knowing where there are stopping locations, knowing where there's a, a toll station and curves in the road, the, the slope of the road. Um, so we assist on things like that. And then we also help with identifying other actors on the road. So where are there crosswalks, where there could be pedestrians, where are there bike lanes, and then also establishing the, the ODD for these different conditions. So the, um, the driving domain for the system. So knowing what conditions are available, uh, what features are present, what are not present, and helping to establish where it's safe for certain conditions of autonomy to operate. And then also, as Philip had mentioned earlier, areas where they don't want to operate, right? So some of these dark spots or areas that are prone to accidents and and issues. So I think MAPS will play a critical role in helping provide additional data to the system for those things. You're allowing the vehicles to operate safely. You don't have to worry about it. The vehicle trying to go off an off ramp if it's on a highway. You, you're clearly operating. And they know lane one, two, three. Okay, there's how you go. You're not your destination. We're not going off the off ramp yet. So you're increasing safety. We're certainly trying to help there. Yes. Philip, what are your thoughts on the future of maps as it relates to autonomous driving? Yeah, I'm 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 excited because I think uh, this will trickle down from the uh, from the current S classes and and seven series of this world into cars that are more affordable for everyone. Um, I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to driver assistance systems that keep people safe. Um, I know that we have a lot of data that is not sensor observable that really helps with that because there are some companies who believe that they can do everything. Uh, with a camera, uh, we believe there's a lot of, or we know there's a lot of data that is not sensor observable. Uh, that's what we provide as a basis. Um, and yeah, I mean, with, with ISA, which goes into every vehicle soon in the European Union, uh, I think we're, we're starting a bottom to top approach as well. So maybe from ISA from the bottom and from L3 to the top, we're reaching uh, more consumers with driver assistance system and automated driving capabilities that will yeah, make driving safe and a, and a pleasure and, and you can focus on a few other things. Uh, maybe just look at the beauty of the landscape outside or have a good chat or uh, 
do a nice call with a friend or with your company colleagues, <laughs> whatever is on your mind. Safety's paramount because safety builds trust and without trust, level two systems will fail, level three systems will fail, level four systems will fail. Safety and trust go hand to hand and that's exactly what here's doing, using technology to increase safety which is going to enhance your customers, the OEMs, and allow them to build trust with their customers. Philip Christian, I really appreciate all the incredible information you shared on ISA today. And as we look to wrap up this insightful conversation, what would you like our listeners to take away with them? Kristen, we'll start with you, please. Yeah, I think the most important thing is that we're just scratching the surface here, right? So, um, you know, we're really working to to help with all systems and all different levels of autonomy. And I think that over time, you're just going to see more and more applications and use cases of this technology appearing and available to consumers. So hopefully over time, people will get develop more trust in these systems, uh, get more comfortable with them, and it will just become the norm. Here is here for all levels of autonomy. Philip, your thoughts, please? As you stated, I mean, I, I like that it uh, keeps people comfortable and safer and that it takes some of the stress um, out of the driving, uh, particular in uh, daily commutes, for example, when you really need to pay a lot of attention. Our technology can make that uh, a lot easier. And I like to, you know, I like what we're discussing with, with our customers today on uh, future features. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to the next few years and how it all develops and how it uh, becomes available in more and more cars for everyone. And as Kristen and Philip Cooley said on this podcast today, here is developing the platform for autonomy. Because today is tomorrow, tomorrow is today, and the future is here technologies. Philip, Kristen, thank you so much for coming on SAE Tomorrow Today. Thank you for having us. Thanks, Grayson. Thank you for listening to SAE Tomorrow Today. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please kindly rate, review, and let us know what topics you'd like for us to explore next. Be sure to join us next week as we speak with Mark P. Mills, author and entrepreneur, who offers unique perspective on the energy transition in the mobility industry. SAE International makes no representations as to the accuracy of the information presented in this podcast. The information and opinions are for general information only. SAE International does not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, product, process, service, or organization presented or mentioned in this podcast.